going to get started if you want to find a seat. I always hate to break, break up the party. By the way, did you hear the 80s music that was going on right there? What was that? It was like going back to high school or something. That was frightening. Very frightening. I lived the 80s once. I don't want to do it again, right? That was, one was enough. Okay, so not quite 80s, but one of my favorite filmmakers is Cameron Crowe. He actually, he did make a lot of 80s films. Um, one of my favorites was um, uh, Say Anything. Like Lloyd Dobler, any Lloyd Dobler fans? Like I want to be Lloyd Dobler. He's, he's one of my heroes. Cameron Crowe, he's a great filmmaker. I think one of the reasons I've liked him always is because he started out as a rock and roll journalist. He wrote about music. And um, he's the kid who, when he was 16 years old, he had been writing, I think in LA, for some like little beat magazines, you know, where they would run him off in those old, I can't remember, the things that made the writing purple. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you know what I'm talking about. So he would write for some of those um, little magazines. And Rolling Stone read an article there, like, you're really good. And they sent him out on the road for three weeks with the Allman Brothers as a 16-year-old. They had no idea that he was still in high school. And um, he, so he wrote on them and, and began this, this career of um, rock and roll journalism. He went on to write things like Say Anything, like I said, or Fast Times at Ridgemont High. That's Cameron Crowe. Um, but his most unqualified success, I think you would have to say, was the film Jerry Maguire, right? Has anybody seen Jerry Maguire? Almost everybody. Okay, so it's, it's like it was up for Best Picture in 1996. And this film gave us three iconic lines that are still part of the American lexicon. Maybe the, the most well-known is, show me the money, right? Remember Rod Tidwell? Um, the, the part played by Cuba Gooding Jr., he just crushed this part, remember this? He, and he, um, he won the, the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. Um, anybody remember what the other two iconic lines are? You have me at hello and... <laughs> you complete me, those are the two, those are the main ones. You have me at hello and you complete me. It stems from this, this point early on in the film when um, they're in the elevator. Jerry Maguire's just been fired from his agency. Um, on, and on an impulse, this woman, Dorothy, goes with him. She just quits her job on the spot, goes with him. And they're both, then the next thing you do is get in this elevator. And they are both kind of freaking out. They did so great. They're just like not sure what is, what's going to happen. And they're standing there in silence, sweating bullets when this hearing impaired couple gets on. And they're kind of in their own little world together. They're signing together. And he signs something to, their, and they, to her and they kiss. And then the door opens, they get off. And then Jerry's trying to lighten the mood and he goes, one word he said. And she says, if you remember, my, my favorite aunt was hearing impaired. He said, she could read sign language. He said, you complete me. That's where, that's where the line originates. It comes back later on though. So these two start a business. And then they start a romantic relationship. And they're both just train wrecks. They're just both kind of lost. And, and in fact, they're about to break up, but instead they decide to get married. Remember that little thing? That was a nice little twist there. But it's not working, clearly not working. And finally, Dorothy has the guts to say it. She's like, I don't think you really love me. I think I'm a hopeless romantic and you're afraid to be alone. That's what's happening here. And so they, they, he leaves and he goes to Rod Tidwell's big Monday night football game. And in this odd twist... Tidwell has a great night. Do you remember this? Anybody else remember this part of the film? This is like, and he does this touchdown dance. It's amazing. Um, 
Anyway, he has a great night. It saves their business. Jerry's there. They celebrate together. But then there's this moment for Jerry McGuire when all he can think about is his wife, Dorothy, at home. And that she's not here to share this moment with him. And he's like, it doesn't work. The moment doesn't mean anything without her. And so he just leaves. He flies home. And then there's this famous scene with Jerry Maguire in the living room. They're not expecting him. And the, the, um, his sister-in-law's divorce group, support group, is there. And he walks in. They're all talking. They don't even see him. He's like, hello, hello. I'm looking, I'm looking for my wife. And you remember this scene? Anyone? This is, this is, this is like what made the movie the movie. Dorothy is stunned. His wife, she's stunned. She, she, she can't figure out why he's home early. And he's in the belly of the beast here. Like these women are glaring at him. It's like a room for, full of divorced women glaring at a man who is about to break up his marriage, right? And, and, and then he's like, okay, well, if this is where this has to happen, then this is where this has to happen. And then for the second time in the film, this character, Jerry, he tries to open up and tell the truth. And the first time, if you remember, it was when he wrote his little manifesto and telling the truth got him fired. And so he starts talking, and it's a disaster. Like, he rambles on. He's kind of blanking on what to say. At one point he says, like, I don't know what's happening to me. Like, this, is, this is, used to be my specialty. They'd send me into the living room. I'd sign the guy up. That's how I made my living. And he, he, he tries to get, get out that he, their company had a big night, but it, it wasn't complete because he couldn't share it with her. He's stumbling around. Finally, he stumbles onto the line from the elevator. He says, you complete me, right? You complete me. And then he keeps on talking. And like, he's ruining it. He had the line, and he's ruining it. And finally, Dorothy says, shut up, just shut up. Just stop talking. And then comes her big line, which is, you have me at hello, right? So I want us to think about these two lines. You complete me, and you have me at hello. And the difference between them, and the different kind of um, pictures of love that they portray. Love as you complete me, which is very different from love as you have me at hello. And what I want to try to argue um, is that one of these is, is a picture of love and the other is really kind of just a fantasy. And I think the fantasy is you complete me. It's, it's this idea of love as self-fulfillment. You know, in our society, we're bombarded with this, with this image, with this fantasy of love as self-fulfillment. We're, we're, we're all, I think, probably aware, at least on some level, that our, our souls are incomplete, right? That we're restless and, and broken in, in lots of ways. And all of our attempts to find something that will com, um, complete us are marked not by success, but by failures and contradictions, we try all kinds of things. We try morality and, and goodness, thinking maybe that will complete us, but it doesn't. We try achievement. We try performance. We try power and control. We try money and accumulation of all kinds of things, um, and nothing works. And eventually, we'll try love and, and try to, you know, find that special someone, the fairy tale love story where our true love will you know, complete us. And of course, anybody who's been in love for any amount of time and stuck around with it will tell you that the fairy tale doesn't, doesn't exist. I mean, it's always bothered me that fairy tales um, end with a curious lack of detail, right? It's just, and they lived happily ever after. You know, that's all you get. 
And then you want to just go, let's talk again in six months, you know. Let's talk again in maybe a couple of years and see if you're still saying you complete me. Because usually it's more like you annoy me in ways that I never thought were possible, right? One of my favorite um, theologians, you know, is Stanley Hauerwas. He has this line. He says it all the time. He, he says, the problem with marriage is we always marry the wrong person, right? That's the problem. You know, I picked you because you said you would complete me, but complete me, but I still feel broken, so you must be the problem in this thing. You're defective. Um, and then we set out to change them, which never goes well. You know? And they're trying to change us at the same time, and at some point we, know, we figure out that this is what's going on, and, and it's, all of it is geared toward self-fulfillment. But here's the thing about love. The thing that I think probably most pastors wouldn't tell you. Most of the time, love doesn't complete things. It complicates things. And this is actually part of what we want from love. Even though we typically can't admit it. Because we all have this sense that our souls are incomplete. We live with this sense of longing. There's, like a, there's something missing uh, a sense of lack and desire. It's just, it's part of the human condition. We live with, with lack and longing and desire. And we're all restless and, and broken. And our attempts to find something that can complete us have, have failed. Because what we really, really need is not somebody to complete us, but something to someone to contend with us. Think of, think of um, Genesis 1 when Adam's alone and it's not good. It's only when there's another facing him as an equal and he has to contend with her and she with him. That, that's, that's what we want. Someone to stick around, you know, and be a mirror for us. To reflect our lives back to us, especially the broken and ugly parts, so that we can learn to change and grow and become renewed in the image of God, which is the, which is the story. That's, that's what we're here for. And that's, that's what love is. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not down on love. Like, I'm not even down on romantic love. I'm a big believer in love. I'm just down on this fantasy of love as you complete me. And it's not just romantic love. It's all varieties of love and friendship. Love is not to find in the other, the object of our love, some perfect self-fulfillment. It's not a perfect match, a you complete me. To love is to see in the other all their faults and, and failures and contradictions and to show up anyway. To, to love is, is to allow the other to see your failures and contradictions and to keep showing up, painful as that is. Love is not you complete me. Love is a lot more like you had me at hello. It's just you see my brokenness, I see yours, but we keep showing up. We keep coming back. And this is incredibly difficult to do um, because, as this one philosopher, Todd McGowan, says, love depends on the embrace of what is undesirable in the object of our love. And I think this is a uniquely Christian insight. Love requires not the elimination of what is undesirable, but the embrace of what is undesirable in the other. I and mean, this is a mistake Jerry Maguire made when he showed up at the door, right? He had, 
he, he opened the door, walked in, and said, where's my wife? Or hello, hello. And that was all he really needed to do. And, and Dorothy recognizes this, right, in the story. Jerry thought he needed to make some big speech. Dorothy just needed him to show up, just keep coming back. Because love requires um, fidelity as much as anything. Love is about showing up again and then again and then again. And when it breaks down, keep showing up. And, and in, in this, learning how to embrace even what is broken and undesirable in the other. I mean, hopefully we all get to feel like the you complete me thing at least once in our life because it's like really fun and exciting, but it isn't real. Like no, no thing, no one, no other will complete us. Even, interestingly, even Christ does not make this promise. And, and this is one of the kind of deep revelations that we get from the New Testament, from the gospel, the story, the Jesus story. Human things have gotten things backwards. We have tended to think that human wholeness or perfection requires the elimination of the negative, the elimination of failure and contradiction. But all of that changes in Christ. What Jesus reveals is that from God's perspective, wholeness or perfection is not about the elimination of the negative. It's about the inclusion of the negative and its redemption, its reconciliation through love. Do love. That's the gospel. That's why Christ doesn't really promise some religious solution to our brokenness. He doesn't give us a sacred object, a new kind of purity code, a religious hoop to jump through. What he offers is love. Love as a way of life. A way patterned on the love of God that meets us at the point of failure and contradiction and embraces what is undesirable in us. I mean, this is, this is the whole trajectory of the, the Jesus story. It tells us that God does not require us to fix our own brokenness before we have access to God. God draws near to us in our brokenness. And, and that's the first move. God comes to us in friendship, in, in love transforming then our, our failures and contradictions into the point of contact between, the, between humanity and, and God. And, and that's, the, that's the revolutionary twist of, of the gospel story, the Christian story. Not that God even removes humanity's longing and desire and lack and, and brokenness but that God draws near to it and, and includes it in the story. Not, not eliminating those things, but rather filling our failures and contradictions with God's presence and thereby redeeming them from the inside out, causing them to serve some new resurrected purpose that was unimaginable before someone loved us. Again, McGowan, he says, there is no quality so universally negative that it could not undergo this transubstantiation in the act of love. And this is part of, by the way, like in a 
theological sense, part of what makes the resurrection not chiefly like a, a Jewish religious event or just a Christian I- event or even just a religious event at all. It's, it's a cosmic thing. I mean, there's a cosmic shift happening at this point that affects all of humanity, all of creation. And it's really revealing the nature of love as transformative, not in the, like, you complete me kind of way, but, um, I mean, love, love does not remove our brokenness. It transforms it. It turns it into something else. It transubstantiates it. You know that word, that, that word transubstantiation is, is what that, uh, it came from the Catholic Church. It's how they describe Eucharist, right? When, when the, um, the doctrine says that the bread and the wine and communion turn into the body and blood of Christ, um, the way we do it as, as Protestants is not to take it, um, literally we take it more of a, a symbolic or a spiritual thing and recognizing that the true substantiation is what happens to us. It's what happens to you and me when we receive this life into our life. We become transformed into what Paul called the body of Christ, the church. That's what happens. That's the destiny of human failure and contradiction. Love um, transubstantiates those things into the very locus of God's love and grace and new creation, resurrection. This, trans, this transformative love. It's, it's not the uh, you complete me kind of love. It's, it's more of the you had me at hello that just keeps coming back, keeps coming back, keeps living in fidelity. This, this um, love that never gives up at the point of our brokenness. And this is the love that I think is at the heart of the story that Rebecca read for us a little bit ago. You know, early in his ministry, Jesus called these 12 disciples. It's a symbolic number, you know. There are 12 disciples because there were 12 tribes in Israel. And he's forming, intentionally, a new Israel here in a symbolic way. 12 new tribes to reveal what was kind of missing in the first go-round here in, in terms of what it means to be the people of God. And these 12, they travel with him. Three years, man. They, they heard every teaching. They, you know, seldom understood them, but they, they heard them. And, and they came to believe he was Messiah and was the one to restore Israel. And then it ended almost as suddenly as it began. The Jewish council sent men to arrest Jesus. They grabbed him. He was praying. They grabbed him in the middle of the night, took him to the high priest's house. The book of John, actually, it gives kind of an interesting detail about this. It says Peter and another disciple had followed them. Um, best guess is it's John. John kind of likes to obscure his own. He, he's telling the story, though. It's got to be him, but he, he kind of says the, another disciple or disciple he loved. So it's this another disciple. They follow him. And, and they go to Caiaphas' house, and we're told that in the story there's a servant girl working the door of Caiaphas' house. Caiaphas's house. It was probably one of those, like a big, like a, it would have a courtyard and then a house and there'd be a gate around it or a wall around it. A big wooden gate, probably one of those little slots in, in the door and she would look out and she, was, she had door duty. She, if she recognized your face, she'd open the door. If she didn't recognize, she'd say, who are you? And, and she'd kind of go ask her, ask her master if he wanted to let him in. That was sort of her job. It was her job to know who was who. And we're told she knew the other disciple, probably John, she didn't, she didn't know Peter. So he's just left standing in the street. 
And at some point, John doubled back and tried to talk Peter in. And when she let him in, the girl asked Peter, you're not one of those disciples too, are you? And Peter said, no, I am not. That's the first denial. She let him into the courtyard. He comes and hangs out around the fire. Charcoal fire, it says, that detail, which comes back later. Somebody standing there warming themselves too said, aren't you one of his disciples? And he, he said, no, I'm not, second time. And then a servant of one of the officials who had gone to arrest Jesus in the garden, somebody who was there said, I saw you with this guy in the garden. And Peter denies it. That's, that's the third time. And then just as Jesus had predicted earlier that this rooster crows because the sun's coming up and, and Peter remembers the prediction by Jesus and he's ashamed. His, his betrayal is before his eyes now. He can see it. His failure, this, this contradiction now. Of course, we know what happens next. They hand Jesus over to Pilate to be tortured and killed and they, they bury him hastily um, so their Sabbath um, can be observed before Sabbath begins at sundown. And then they huddle in fear behind locked doors until dawn Sunday morning. And then came some whispers of good news, right? At first it was kind of incomprehensible, like he wasn't there, the body's gone, I don't know what's happening. And, and then the news from Mary Magdalene, I saw him, I saw him. He's alive, not dead. I saw him in the garden. And then out of nowhere, he just appears to them in the upper room and then again later to Thomas. And so he, he's risen, right? And they've seen him. They know he's risen. But even then, it's confusing. What does this mean? Well, just because they saw him raised doesn't mean they, they can make sense of that reality. I mean, Jesus died and came back to life. Like, how do you wrap your minds around this? I mean, they had glimpses of this with guys like they had seen Lazarus just a few days earlier raised but Lazarus was raised and he just went back to being Lazarus like he just went back and did his work with his family and his normal life Jesus doesn't do this he wasn't back with his disciples doing his normal thing they didn't even know where he was much less what he wanted them to do and so they take off they head back home up to the Galilee probably most likely Peter's house by the sea of, sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. If you remember early on, there these two sets of brothers, James and John, Peter and Nathaniel, they all worked together for probably James and John's dad. They were in business together as fishermen. And then Jesus shows up that, that day, says, follow me, and they just leave their nets, follow them. Now here they are back, same place, three years later, Evening came, and Peter's, you know, Peter, so he's like, I can't just sit around here. I'm going fishing. Or others say, okay. They went along, and we're told just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, the words kind of, it's like I read one commentator said, it's like saying lads, fellas. You have no fish, have you? <laughs> this is funny. And they answered, no. He said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat, which you heard is like not a thing that you do in those boats. And you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. 
And the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. I love this. Um, So it's, it's daybreak. So they're telling this story at daybreak. Same time of day, Peter denied Christ when the rooster crowed. They fished all night. They've caught nothing. In all four Gospels, the disciples can never manage to catch a fish without Jesus' help. It's so funny. And then, like, I I feel like, I feel seen when I I remember that detail. (laughs) Then some guy on the beach yells, you try to fish, you should throw your nets on the other side of the boat, which is just heckling. And when they did, it worked. Like, their nets were full. And and, and this is deja vu for John. He, he remembers this feeling. Oh, there's only one guy who could do crazy stuff like this. And he says, he says to Peter, it's got to be him. That has to be Jesus. And we're told when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes for he was naked and jumped into the sea. I'm trying not to laugh, but that, that's really funny. But the, others, the other disciples came in a boat in, in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about 100 yards off. And when they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire. Same word. There were fish on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring um, some of the fish that you have just caught. It, it really seems as though um, John intends this to be a little cheeky, a little funny. He's, he's kind of picking at some things and doing it on, on, on purpose. Um, you know, they worked in their undergarments or nothing at all. Even undergarments was naked for them. But it, when Peter figures out it's Jesus, instead of just jumping in and swimming to his friend, he puts on his tunic and his cloak and then jumps into the water fully clothed. Like, and then it says they're not very far, about 100 yards out. Like, that's far for swimming with, with a wool cloak on. Um, and the boat's going to beat him in for sure if he even makes it. Because swimming in a wool cloak is really hard. It's, it's comical. And by the way, it's not the first time Peter has jumped out of a boat, headed toward Jesus. Also a disaster, right? We don't really know why he dressed, got dressed first. Maybe it was he wanted to dr- greet his teacher with proper respect. That's the one that makes the most sense to me. Um, or maybe it was that his nakedness kind of was too on the nose with the vulnerability he was feeling in face to face Jesus with this denial on his conscience. Either way, it's funny. And they came ashore. He has a charcoal fire going with the fish on it and the bread. And this scene, it's, it's a resurrection scene. It kind of gives you a little like weird details about resurrection, like um, post-resurrection Jesus still eats. I'm like, that's good news for whatever comes next. <laughs> you know? He's, he's still recognizable as Jesus. They're still friends. Whew, that's good news. And, and then, then the charcoal fire detail, which is just great. Um, immediately, he thinks of Caiaphas' house, right? Where Peter denied Jesus by a, a charcoal fire. Where Peter had said, I don't know him. Here they are. They know him. They know who this is. It makes me think of the way that smell, you know, triggers memory. I picture Peter just flashing back to the night, the memory of his denial, and, and maybe wondering if he's going to be doomed to recall that same memory every time he smells a fire like this. Because, you know, Peter had sworn that he would die with Jesus, that he would never abandon him. 
but he had denied he even knew him three times. It was a terrible failure. And, and then and Jesus was gone before he could take it back, you know. And so Peter, he was likely worried about where things stood. Jesus had kind of left him in charge, you know, of the mission. Peter's supposed to be the rock. He's, he's the leader. Here he is back in Galilee, fishing, like he never even met him. And then Jesus shows up again, like he did the first time. A second chance by the sea. And a, and a chance now for him to have a, a private conversation. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? We won't catch it, but that line had to sting. He called him Simon. Like he... He called him Peter because he saw something rock-like in him, right? He calls him Simon. It's back to just plain old Simon. I mean, it had to hurt. Thinking his denial, maybe it did disqualify me. And now Jesus kind of questioned him directly. And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. And then Jesus repeats it two more times. For a total of three, same number of times Peter had denied him. And, I mean, you're just by the end of the third one, you're just feeling for Peter here. All set to fish for people, and now he's just fishing, and he's not even doing a very good job at that. And then Jesus shows up, he freaks out and almost drowns himself, and now he's no longer rock. He's just plain old Simon struggling to learn how to keep showing up and his life, you know, now marked by these failures and contradictions. And we're told, it says, Peter felt hurt. I'm so grateful for that line. Because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And then he adds this thing on there. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt, go wherever you wanted. And then when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not want to go. And he, he, then there's this little gloss in the text that says, he said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. And after this, he said to him, same thing he said to him the first time by the sea, just simple, follow me. Let's go. As I was studying this week, this one thing kept, this one question kept popping out to me. And I, it's weird because I think it's a question I've never actually considered before. I've read this a million times. The question is, why does Jesus ask the question, do you love me? Why love? Why not do you believe in me? That's what most of us were taught to ask. Do you have faith in me? Why not do you call me Messiah and Lord? Or do you call me the Son of God? I think it's an important question. Why do you say love? Instead of any of those other things. And I think surely it must be that he's trying to draw Peter back after he failed. After failures and contradictions have 
tanked him, and he's right back where he was three years ago, thinking, is this it? And he's got to find a way to draw him back, and this is the way. This is the only way, is love. And he's revealing, I think, the heart of his teaching, the heart of his Christ's mission, that love must be at the center of what Jesus wants from his disciples. And, and I think Jesus is revealing, indeed, that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of love. That's what it is. Love rules in this kingdom. And there's a sense in which the, the reason Peter and the, the others are stuck in light of fail, failures and contradictions, right? The reason they're stuck is because they kind of thought love was you complete me. And, and then he died. And they felt anything but completed, right? And they all scattered and Peter denied him. And even after witnessing the resurrected Christ, they're still flailing. These guys are not completed by any stretch. They're struggling still with their own failures and contradictions, which feels so familiar to me. And then Jesus shows up acting strangely normal in light of their failure, like unfazed by this. And then he asks him, you know, the heart of, heart of the question, the heart of the matter, do you love me? And then he's just like, so go do, do what I thought you'd do. Right? Do you love me? Not do you believe in me? Do you have faith in me? Do you give mental assent to certain truth claims about my divinity and power? Like he says, do you love me? Do you love me? That's it. Love is the center. Love is the key. Love is the answer to the failures and the contradictions, right? And then Peter says, yes, and Jesus is like, cool, be my sheep. Like, do what I tell you to do. Keep showing up for the broken ones in your world. Extend this same kind of love and grace to the people who are struggling and lost around you. Um, to the sheep who, you know, the connotation is also need some good news, you know, need some leadership. If you truly love me, right, then Jesus is going, it has to be the you had me at hello kind of love that keeps showing up, even in the face of constant failure. And I, I think this is an essential aspect of what it means to follow Jesus. I, I think we're supposed to try to have the courage to allow Jesus to come to us at our point of failure, our point of brokenness, the place where we blew it, and just say, do you love me? And say yes, and then he says, then keep showing up, keep feeding my sheep, Take this love to the others. Not an illusion of love, it's self-fulfillment. You know, we're, ch we're chasing an infinite God, right? We're finite. God is infinite. We're never going to catch this. Like, there will always be a longing, right? This is not going away. This is for our benefit. It's not self-fulfillment. It's not you complete me kind of love. It's you had me at hello, a love that's just super tender and full of grace at our worst moment that draws us out of hiding and helps us to have the courage to tell the truth about our lives and then to be met there by other people who 
are also ragamuffins, teaching us that love just depends on the next move after you see it. After you spot your brokenness, the next move, that's love. You come back and you, you embrace what is undesirable in, in yourself and in each other. This is, how it, this is how the kingdom comes, man. This is how the world gets transformed. This is how our brokenness is not a problem. It becomes a means of grace. The place where God is transubstantiated, the place where God shows up and is alive in us, resurrected and alive in the world. That's the story. So when God shows up at your worst point and you have spotted your own brokenness and says, do you love me? My advice would be say yes. (laughs) Answer yes. And show up. Keep showing up. Love is fidelity as much as anything. Get on with it. There is no um, there is no brokenness. There is no mistake you've made that disqualifies you. Do you, you hear me? There is no mistake that can't be filled with God's love and turned in, transformed into something powerfully good, resurrected. When God shows up, when Christ shows up at your broken place and says, Do you love me? Answer yes. And then go out into the world, feed my sheep, extend this grace. When you spot other people's brokenness, don't make them pay. Just keep coming back. What they hunger for, of course, is what we hunger for, which is some radical kind of love that can complete us, right? But what we get instead is, is you had me at hello. You keep coming back to me, and I'll keep making resurrection happen. This is how the kingdom comes. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that um, this wouldn't just be a story from long ago about what might happen. But this, this would maybe happen. And it's, it's weird to live in a world that um, offers us this kind of self-fulfillment option. And it really is what we want and not what we need. And we chase it and chase it. I pray that you would make Redemption Church the kind of place where we just come out with it from the start. Come out with our brokenness and our failures and contradictions and just confess it from the beginning. So that we can, um, so that we can see your grace and your love transform that. Pray for everyone sitting here um, who just struggles, all of us, with our secret burdens and our our longing for our lives to matter and make sense. Man, we turn our eyes to you. We open our hearts to you, God. Send your spirit, the spirit of Christ, to live inside us, live through us.
Amen. Will you stand, please? And we're going to receive communion. And um, the way we do is we just come forward row by row, and you'll be offered, we're back to um, regular bread, which is nice. So the way we do is you'll, if, if you don't want to, um, if you're still kind of worried about COVID stuff, we do have shrink wrap stuff. You can grab that. If not, you'll be offered the, the plate of bread and the cup. Just take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and receive it. And they'll say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ. And we just kind of talk about why we, why we do this. You know, we're receiving his life into our life and trying to be made out of the stuff that, uh, that he's made out of. And that's, that's a promise he made to us. He said, whenever we get together, eat this bread, drink this cup. Become my body and blood and, and my presence in the world. And so this is why we also we say anybody who can come, we don't like, you know, have to join the church or something first. Just come down here and eat this bread. We don't even know why it works, but it does. So come join, right? So if you would pray with me and let's, let's bless it. Lord, we ask your blessing on this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?